This is Law for Community Workers on the Go, a podcast for community and health workers. My name is Jessica Sullivan and I work in the Community Legal Education Branch at Legal Aid New South Wales. In this episode of Hard Conversations, we are privileged to be talking to Dr Kay Patterson AO, the Federal Age Discrimination Commissioner at the Australian Human Rights Commission. Dr Patterson is talking with Mary Lovelock, the solicitor in charge of the Legal Aid Elder Abuse Service on the central coast of New South Wales. Dr Patterson talks about her role as a commissioner and about ageism and elder abuse. These episodes were recorded and made on Darkenjung and Gadigal land. Dr Patterson is speaking from the lands of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of these lands and pay our respects to their elders past and present. We acknowledge that this is Aboriginal land, always was, always will be. Elder abuse is a sensitive and sometimes confronting topic. We want this to be a safe space for listeners. So if you need support at any time, there are services that can help you and you can find their contact details in the notes below. If you suspect elder abuse may be occurring to someone in your life, then please speak up. If you're on the Central Coast, you can call the Legal Aid New South Wales Elder Abuse Service directly on 024324-5611. For anywhere else across Australia, please call the National Elder Abuse Helpline, which is 1800 353 374, and they will transfer you to the closest elder abuse service. Now, if you're a regular listener to our podcast, then you will have become familiar with our style. We'll generally tell you about a legal problem, what it is, who it can affect, and things you can do to help clients who might be experiencing it. But elder abuse is not a simple legal problem. It's complex, it comes in many forms, it doesn't discriminate across gender or cultural lines, and the abuser is often a family member, a trusted friend, or a carer. This series, which we have called Hard Conversations, explores a problem which is challenging and we know there is not always going to be one right answer for every person, community or culture. So throughout this series, you're going to hear from lots of different people about their understanding of elder abuse, the ways they think about it in their communities and how we can start to address it together. Now let's go to Mary Lovelock, who will introduce Dr. Patterson. Welcome to the podcast today, Dr. Patterson. Today we're going to be talking about ageism. We're going to be talking about elder abuse. And you've been working in this area for a long time. You've constantly been ahead of the curve and had your eye on the future long before people were speaking about this. So tell us a little bit about what drew you to be an advocate for older people. Well, let's start by saying, let's call me Kay, Marion, and to the people out there who are listening. Thank uh, you, Kay. I prefer to be called. And I don't, I don't think I really appreciate the long, the emphasis on long. But yes, I've been around the sun a few times. And I was interested in this area way back when I first finished my PhD and I was teaching health science students at a college called Lincoln Institute, a bit like Cumberland College in New South Wales. Trained physios, speech therapists, occupational therapists, nurses, podiatrists. Um, in fact, some of them might be listening today, actually, some people who've trained in those allied health professions. And I was teaching early childhood development because that's what I'd, I'd, I'd majored in, in in Sydney University, psychology and child, early childhood development education. But I realised that the students I was teaching were mainly going to be working with older people. So I decided I'd better get cracking and learn about gerontology. Well, nobody was very much interested. We had one geriatric psychiatrist in Australia and almost no geriatricians. I think we had none or only a handful. And so it wasn't an area that people were very interested in. People 
didn't sort of look at what do we need to know about the well-olding older person in terms of understanding a person as they age and some of the things that happen in cognition and memory and learning and physical attributes, for example. So I went to America on two occasions, one to the University of Michigan and had a very, very active and well-resourced gerontology centre and I came back for about a year and a half and went back to Penn State University, which was another centre of excellence in gerontology in America. So I had six months in each of those universities as a visiting fellow and I was able to access um, up-to-date journal articles. Those young people who are listening today won't realise that sometimes it would take three to six months to get a journal by sea to Australia and it was almost out of date by the time we got into course. So I set up and worked on course development with my two colleagues in in in, in Victoria working at Lincoln, all by mail, by aerograms. It, took, it was a very, very long process. But that started my interest. And I was teaching gerontology to undergraduate students and then I developed a diploma in gerontology. But it was when the Beatles were saying, will you still need me, will you still... Will you still need me when I'm 64? That was considered to be very old. And I think what's happened in that 30 to 40 years since I was teaching at Lincoln, it's nearly 40 years, it's over 40 years, we've actually seen an increase in the life expectancy. I think for your listeners, I think one of the most powerful things is to say in 1976, there are 122 centenarians in Australia. There are now over 4,000 centenarians, and in 2040, and some of your listeners will be in their 50s and 60s, there'll be over 40,000 centenarians. So we all have to think about living a 100-year life but also working with people who are living into their 80s and 90s, which wasn't common when I was in my 20s and 30s when I was doing this area of gerontology. So it's been a passion. I then got into politics, a bit like Forrest Gump, because <laughs> Um, some women in Victoria thought I should use my skills, having worked in three universities or three tertiary institutions, having um, being interested in ageing and health, which were federal issues, and they supported me to go into Parliament and I pursued issues affecting older people for my 21 years in the Senate. Then I had a bit of a break doing not-for-profit things and in semi-retirement, and when this job came up, I thought this is... I think this would be like fitting back into an old shoe and I've loved every minute of it. It's been tremendous because I've been able to use all my skills from my teaching through to my parliamentary experience and being able to use how to get things done and changed and now uh, in this position. As Commissioner, you're a passionate advocate for older people and I read that you have a particular focus on elder abuse, homelessness um, and seniors in the workplace. All three of those areas have a relationship with ageism. And most people understand ageism to be the stereotyping of people based on their age. But would you like to expand on the definition and talk to how you view ageism in our society? Well, ageism can affect all age groups. And I think it's very difficult. Young people, when I was 25, I had a dinner party for a friend of mine from England who didn't have a lot of family or people around. She was 32 and I asked five or six people to come to dinner and I thought, isn't it terrible? She's so old. <laughs> and when you're 25, 32 seems very old, but the older you get, that gap reduces. You know, somebody who's six years older than you doesn't seem all that old. So I think it's 
young people can't quite understand, and it do, and years seem incredibly long. It's only you know when you're 25, five years is one fifth of your life. When you're 55, it's a less a smaller proportion of your life. So I think there's a whole factor that works in there. So it's one of the things we need to do is be able to help people and expose them to older people so they see well older people. That's what I used to do when I was teaching. I'd invite people in. I had a friend whose mother had just got married again at 75 and she came and talked about that. Some of the things she talked about raised their eyebrows a little because they didn't see their parents as sexual beings, let alone their grandparents, the person their grandparents' age. And I had people who were active in the community coming in because I wanted the students to set their goals higher for rehabilitation. But if they'd only been exposed to one grandparent who was elderly and not well or only one grandparent who was ageing well, they didn't see that as a norm. So I think... And then we're going to just have ageism, which is pervasive and pernicious, where people are sort of fed the myths and believe them. You know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. You know, mm -hmm. old people are stubborn and, and don't want to change. All sorts of issues like that that affect how you see an older person. Look, there was a, a, a UK Centre for Ageing Better has a, had a report, and in it they describe the different ages of, I think, in a very interesting way. It's They did this article called Doddering But Dear, and they were looking at examining age-related stereotypes. And I think it, they, they've come up with one of the best definitions of ageism, and they say ageism is a combination of how we think about age, the stereotyping, how we feel about age, prejudice, and how we behave in relation to age discrimination. So it's got three components. And I also talk about ageism being benevolent or malevolent. And sometimes benevolent can overprotect people and take away their autonomy and their agency. And I'll just give you one example. And some, some of your listeners maybe need to think about how they treat their parents. I went away with my family, my two younger brothers who are much younger than I am, and their families to Italy when we were allowed to fly, <laughs> and we were they were going um, sledding. And I said, well, I want to go sledding too. Oh, uh, we don't think you should. You could get hurt. I said, hang on, what about the kids? You've got a 15-year-old, 14, 15, and 16-year-old. They'll go faster and they could get hurt. And they started to overprotect me, and I suddenly thought, this is the beginning of the end. Mm. So I was about to go down to the first curve, and I was fine. So then I, I was sledding all day. But I realised that was the first sign of, just protecting you and somebody puts their arm out to help you because of your age, not because I'm physically most probably reasonably fit. Uh, and so I think that's what happens in aged care, for example. It happens in families. Oh, mum, you can't do that or you can't travel overseas on your own. You know, we let kids go in skateboards and risk their life and limb, you know, zooming up and down on a skateboard and, and they say, oh, no, you can't go out. So I think you can have benevolent, overprotection ageism and you can have malevolent where people don't treat you with all your human rights and treat you they may neglect you or they may abuse you and then that's ageism in a malevolent form so it can it's got many parts and it can take some different forms
Sometimes in our service, we kind of see a play out with um, maybe a member of the family helping out the older person with their shopping. I'll do shopping for you, mum. Not a problem. You know, and they take the ATM card and they do the shopping. And then every week, something additional gets on the shopping list that uh, has nothing to do with the older person. Um, and it's just that slow creep of um, control over the older person. Well, I think there are a, a few issues that have come up there. The Australian Law Reform Commission um, produced, and some of your listeners might want to go to the Australian Law Reform Commission website and just have a look at the recommendations that the Law Reform Commission came up, especially those of this, those who are listening who are lawyers, because there are some very interesting recommendations there across aged care, across changes to the law with regard to powers of attorney, etc. Now, one of the things I think that we haven't done well is educating people about powers of attorney and educating those who have somebody's power of attorney about the responsibilities they have. Now, one of the difficulties is that every jurisdiction has different rules about powers of attorney and the Australian Law Reform Commission recommended having a harmonisation of those powers of attorney. Well, you would have thought we'd asked them to work out how to have every state secede. I mean, it's just been impossible. It's nearly three and a half years. I constantly go to the Attorneys General who all tell me, oh, yes, we think it's a good idea. But as Anna Bly from the Australian Banking Association, because they've got an interest in having a unified power of attorney, mm. said, and her experience and my experience dealing with juris different jurisdictions in health and, as a, and, and for Anna as a Premier, well, they say, yes, we agree, as long as it's our power of attorney. Now, there is a, a booklet that the government, federal government, funded for the public advocate in New South Wales and Victoria to write called You Decide Who Decides, a very good booklet which you can get from there and it's on the public advocate's website, You Decide Who Decides, and it talks about the things you need to think about before making a power of attorney. But blow me down, in the, in the margin they've got, Check with Western Australia rules. Check with Queensland rules. Check with New South Wales rules. If you're trying to help your mum, if you're living in New South Wales, you're living on the central coast, and you want to help your mum who lives in Melbourne or in Brisbane and your brother's in Perth or in America, the rules are all different. And so they end up in arguments about it. I think that I would like to see your uh, listeners today writing to the Attorney-General State Attorney General and saying, what about getting on and being a, showing a leadership role in the CAG meeting, the Council of Attorneys General, and get this thing done to help us? Because what I'd love to see is education of people about their rights and the power of attorney and the responsibilities. People say, I've got a power of attorney over my mother. No, no, you've got a power of attorney to work with her on your on, on managing her financial affairs. Language is, language is so important, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, depends on which state you're in, whether yeah. you've got an enduring power of attorney tied up in all of that as well. Now, one of the things that happens is that I've, been, I've had power of attorney, I've been had power of attorney for three people. Nobody's ever said to me, your responsibilities are not to mix up the person's money with your money, all the sorts of things that you should do. Mm. It, that there should be some form of agreement or relationship, an oral agreement between if you're going to actually use their money to do the shopping, that you don't just suddenly slide into into using more of it. I think one of the problems is that people get jack 
of the fact that their sisters in Queensland, their brothers in Perth, and they're doing all the shopping. They'll just pay for the petrol. I'll just do this, and that that can just happen and, and and creep up. But there's some people who totally misuse it, you know. And we've got an example in Victoria of a couple who, our English couple, she died. He was left on his own. The people over the back put a stile over the back fence to help him. They not only helped him, but they helped them help themselves to everything he owned, including his power of attorney, put the house up for sale, and a woman down the street asked for a welfare check from the police. And finally, the police, well, not finally, the police went straight away, but he was dehydrated and starving and died in Box Hill Hospital five days later. Now, that's the extreme end of elder abuse compared with this dribbling away at a bit of money for, pocket money for having done the shopping. Yeah. So it can financial abuse can take forms from each, you know, from the beginning of that to the extreme to total neglect. Absolutely. Look, one of the messages I'll get out to that that um, often people don't realise is it's really easy to change your power of attorney. While you've still got capacity, it's easy to revoke your power of attorney and appoint somebody else. And so for our community workers who are uh, out there listening and looking after clients uh, where you suspect they're being financially abused, um, there's simple remedies for that older person. And Mary, so, I think when I go out and speak to large groups of older people, the comment that I get when we're having morning tea or standing around afterwards, I'd say more often than anything is, the thing I've learned today is I can revoke my power of attorney. I yeah. didn't know that. And I think they feel that once they've given that away, that's gone forever. That's the sort of education. If we had a national power of attorney, you could have bot chats teaching people about the sorts of things they need to consider before they write their power of attorney. But I also think we need to train those people who witness powers of attorney, and I think we should be tighter on who witnesses it, to say you need to give the people this information when they're witnessing it and give the person who's making the power of attorney some information to give to the person to say, here's your responsibility. If you don't do it, I'm going to change it. Mm. You're a great advocate on this cause, um, Kay, and I've heard you speak many times um, about this because we know that lack of planning ahead documents can lead to financial abuse and often, you know, ageism sits behind financial abuse with the person um, in the family sort of taking advantage of the older person. But I was just going to say ageism is not the sole cause of elder abuse, but it's a definite contributor. And I was just going to ask you a bit about, in your experience, how do you see ageism contributing to elder abuse? Well, I think it can contribute in a number of ways. One, one is that this issue of, uh, and I think it's the, this area, but all the, the three areas I've been focusing on have all been exacerbated by COVID-19, well, mum, you don't shouldn't you know you don't need this great big house. Why don't you downsize and give us some money towards our house? Or you know, well, my marriage is over and I've met this girl and we want to have a family. Like I'll just rub out the previous one. Can I have some money? Or you or worse still, if you don't give me the money, you won't see the grandchildren again. Those sort of threats, emotional threats, are just awful. And you know, when you've and we've seen people very upset here in lockdown in Victoria, not being able to see their grandchildren, how important their grandchildren are to them and how how important to those children are the grandparents. But that threat 
and the banks tell me that. Oh, if, if somebody comes in with somebody and they say, oh, I want to take out 50000 would you like to speak to the bank manager on your own? Yes, and often they'll say to the bank manager on their own, look, I just want to give him the money because I won't see the grandchildren. So you, you see, and I think that it, we've seen the number of calls to helplines has increased right across the country during COVID because people are moving back in. They mm. can't pay their rent. They're moving back in with their parents, starting to put pressure on them. Mum, I need some money. You know, job seekers are being reduced or I can't get a job or I've got to pay the mortgage even though I've got someone, you know, all sorts of excuses and, and people cave in. So it can be because people are greedy or also think, we well, basically lived too long. I expect you to die when you're in your 70s and now you're hanging out at 85. Why well, I'm not getting my my inheritance when I should. You know, and I think they've just got to be educated. Their mother's house and her assets are theirs or their father's or their parents are theirs until they die. And, yeah. and I don't know how we educate people, but I am shocked at some of this. And you must be shocked at some of the stuff you see. But people need to know there's help. And that's one of the most important things that that people that are listening to the podcast, whether they're allied health professionals or young lawyers or they're, um, you know, ACAT assessment team people or whatever, if they suspect that somebody is being pressured into going into a nursing home or pressured to give money or pressured to downsize their place, then there's help. We've got a bookmark we distribute. And this is the sort of thing that people might pick up as as red flags, and this this bookmark says, and it came and modelled on a bookmark that was developed by the Canberra Community Legal Centre. Uh, it's your right to live free from elder abuse. And so the questions they're asked, all the statements, I'm treated with respect by my family and friends. I know how my money is being spent. I choose what happens in my home. Decisions about my life are in my best interest, and my will reflects my own wishes. I know where my medication is. If you answer no to any of these statements, you may wish to talk to someone you can trust. And 1800 Elder Help is the line to ring 1800 353 374. 1800 353 374. That goes to the helpline in the state from which you're ringing. So if you get that number or if somebody says to you, my sister in Melbourne or my sister in Adelaide is being really, really hassled by her children, mightn't be your client who's being hassled, then you give them that number, they will be directed to help within the state from which they're calling. So that's really important. Now, the other thing is I'm, I'm staggered. Since they've taken codeine from across the counter in pharmacists, kids are often now stealing their grandparents' morphine-based medication. I mean, that's why we've got that question in there. Now, one of the other things is that isolation and loneliness is a major factor in elder abuse, where people are alone. And one of the things I'm concerned about, and I'd love your listeners to be concerned about, is as we have more and more aged care in the home, when they're in a facility, an aged care facility, there's likelihood that another staff member might report what they see as abuse from a family member or from another staff member. But if you've got people coming in one-on-one, then we've got to work out and think about how do we protect those people. So turning a blind eye, if you're going in to assist someone with aged care in the home, 
is not good. Mm. Every one of us has a responsibility. We've just done a little web, a little advertisement that says we all need to open our eyes to elder abuse. And I always say it takes if it takes a village to protect to to for to bring up a child, it takes a whole community to keep an older person safe. It's the health worker, it's the social worker, it's the dentist, it's the hairdresser. And now in the three in Victoria, Queensland and New South Wales, there are now organisations of hairdressers learning what the red flags are. Because when you go to a hairdresser for 20 years, they know more about you than you know about yourself. So it's the whole community that needs to be aware and know where they can get help. That's, uh, that's a great point. And when we first started our service, because our service in the main relies on referrals from stakeholders, and you think of all those like, um, you know, um, like stakeholders like social workers, health what? workers, community workers, and then when you start thinking a little bit uh, deeper, you start thinking, actually, hairdressers are a really constant source. Uh, they have an older person sitting in their seat maybe for an hour every month or two months, but also think people like chemists and also um, vets as well too because often an older person may be really isolated but they will never, uh, you know, give up on the care of their, you know, their pet dog or their cat. And so it's those like that broader community that has to be made aware about um, elder abuse. Um, audiologists, for example, if, you know, you go and you say, oh, my son wouldn't let me spend that much on hearing aids. That's a red flag. So there's exactly. older people who are, now we're looking at working with OPAN. We've been looking at working to develop some courses that, uh, CPD courses with the allied health professions, but your new New South Wales Commissioner for Disability and Ageing has developed some material for people who are like Meals on Wheels, community visitors, those sorts of people, which is available on his website, but also for those of you who are listening, Compass is a website which was one of the recommendations of the Law Reform Commission or a comment they made that we should have a place on the web where people could go and find all sorts of material. And Compass is being developed by the EAAA, the Elder Abuse Action Australia, to, to put together all the material that we know about it. So, you know, there's some very interesting material. We we haven't talked about sexual abuse, but there's a wonderful website, uh, video about Marguerite. I don't know whether you've seen it. I have. I have. It's 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 really powerful video. And Marguerite was raped when she was 92 by somebody who came in to do mm. some repair in her, on the pretext of doing a repair. She didn't tell anybody because she thought she may have been seen to encourage him. That's that era, you know. Mm. Well, what did I do to encourage him to do that? That was terrible, but she, in the most dignified way, mm. and sadly she died last year, but I think that's worthwhile for if any of you are doing training material, and those of you listening, to actually get people to watch that because that's another awful, tragic form of elder abuse. Absolutely. Look, we've spoken a little bit about ageism and its relationship to elder abuse. I suppose for the benefit of the listeners, our community workers and other listeners, I might give the big, broad definition of elder abuse that I like to use, which is any act or omission that causes an older person harm or distress within a relationship of trust. And we sadly know that 
probably about 60% of elder abuse is perpetrated by adult children, which makes it um, a really heartbreaking and a challenging statistic for us to work with. But I just thought I might ask uh, UK to expand on the definition and perhaps how you view elder abuse in society and also discuss any opportunities for change. Well, the Australian Institute of Family Studies has been commissioned by the federal government to do a scoping study on the definition and a study or develop a study and also to engage in a prevalence study because Canada and Britain had done a prevalence study. We rely on world health figures and they're very, very sort of elastic. It's between, you know, 4 or 14%. It's, so it's going to be a very hard thing to do because I think there'll still be a lot of hidden elder abuse, but at least it'll give us some sort of beginning of an understanding. But really what we've got to look at is how does it, it covers a whole range of things. It can be financial abuse it can and it can be all of these things together it can be physical abuse and so people need to just notice um and one of the things that interested me was up in my training as child developmental psychologist we were shown some videos in the 1960s of children who'd been abused black and white 16 millimeter film our, our professor who showed us was lambasted by everybody else in the department this is alarmist She's showing them this American film of children who've been abused. It doesn't happen in Australia. Well, that's the sort of position elder abuse was about eight to ten years ago. A, it was family business, and B, it didn't happen. People wouldn't do that to their parents. Psychological, you won't see the grandchildren. You're the worst mother that you can ever have on this earth. All those sorts of things. You're mean. You know, you've got more than I've got, and look at me. Sexual, you know, we've just talked about that interfering with somebody in an inappropriate way or sexually, or neglect. And neglect's another one. We had one story of a man locked up in his bedroom by his niece who'd moved in with him, and he was sending little aeroplane messages, trying to fly them with little bits of paper he had, and one got into the next-door neighbours and said, help me, help me, I'm locked up. That's how he got the message out. Now, I keep, I keep thinking I need, I need counselling after some of the stories we hear. But for, hopefully we'll see from the prevalence study just how much and what type of abuse there is. So, um, as I said, sometimes that approach of being benevolent, you know, protecting me, could end up taking away my independence. So it can be locking me away a bit, not in the nasty way, but... Um, you know, and the other, one of the other symbols is not letting relatives visit or friends visit. Isolation, yeah. I mean, it's uh, the stories are, are heartbreaking um, and our service has only been up and running for 12 months on the Central Coast. But already um, I realise the very important role that community workers have in linking older people who may be experiencing elder abuse to services, especially in circumstances where the older pe older person may have some sort of um, disability or may have capacity issues. Um, and with that in mind, are there any messages that you might want to get out to our community workers about, um, about how they can support older people? Well, I think one of the things is understanding it is a form of family violence, but it's quite different and family breakdown and abuse, it's, a, it's different in many ways. If I've chosen a partner who's not right and has abused me, whether it's a 
female or a male, you know, so that could be a male to female. But so I've, I've suffered abuse in a, in a relationship. Often the family will say to me, well, we told you he wasn't any good for you or she wasn't any good for you, but we'll stick behind you and support you. And also you may be young enough to start over again. Well, when, you're, when it's elder abuse, often it pitches one part of the family against the other. You're ashamed. What have I done to deserve this? I, w- I thought I was a reasonable sort of mother and look what's happened. I often say that elder abuse has all the complexities of domestic violence and then some, you know, and that stuff around um, capacity, um, illness, end of life issues, you know, that parental nurturing pool. It's really, really complex stuff. And my experience after working, you know, in this service is that there's an enormous amount of awareness raising that has to be done, you know, breaking through that shame cycle. The National Australian Research Institute did a very in-depth qualitative study some, some years ago with 28 people who had been quite significantly abused. And they said, what do you want to happen? And this is the debate that goes on in the community about should it be a criminal offence or should it be, you know, a, a, a not criminal? And they all said, look, we don't want them to end up in court, but we want recompense for what they've done. You know, we want the money back if it's money or an apology. We want them to have help for what's driven this, either it's their greed or their mismanagement of money or their addiction to alcohol or gambling or whatever it is. So it maybe is quite different in the terms of what recompense or the way you try and correct that or, or, or get it back. The other thing is that we've seen now that family mediation has been much more a part of dealing with this rather than a legal approach. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing Family Relationships Australia being funded to do it. We're seeing other organisations being funded to look at how can we mediate this and get the family back on a, a more even keel and footing, respecting the dignity and the will of the older person who's been abused. So I think there are a lot of things that we can be done. And I think that we need to say to older people, There are remedies for this. Mm. We can help you and there is help available. One of the things we haven't talked about today is scamming and loneliness. I mean, the Australian Psychological Society, one of its recent um, journals last year, talked about an epidemic of loneliness in Australia. And the two groups that are most lonely are 18 to 24-year-olds and, old, and older people. So loneliness can be a real factor in elder abuse, whether it's elder abuse from family members or somebody who ingratiates themselves into a person's, you know, there's no family around, somebody at the church suddenly decides that they'll help them out and they're not, or somebody at a club they're in, oh, we can help them out. Keeping an eye out for that. One of the things with loneliness is getting online and being scammed mm-hmm. by online. Now, the e-safety commissioner, for those people who think that uh, they may have someone who talks about, oh, this wonderful friend in uh, Calathumpia that I've met and she's coming out to stay with me, they should um, look at the e-safety.gov.au forward slash seniors and they talk about helping older people to stay safe online and even just suggesting to them, have you thought about looking at this? We have one case where a woman 
in Arkansas, had hooked up with a guy in Western Australia. She came out for six weeks, wonderful holiday at his expense. Next year came out. And the next year when she was going to come, said, I can't come. My grandson's ill. We need money for his uh, surgery. He sent money, $150,000, and never saw her again. Just listening to somebody, if they start saying, oh, I've met this wonderful person in, you know, California or California or wherever else, that's another sign that you should be thinking about or even saying to the family, do you realise that, that he's online with somebody? And I'm now involved with Australia Post, looking at how Australia Post, because people can do their banking there and they can use Western Union to send their money off. So banks have got a role to play and Australia Post has got a role to play. Mm. For community workers that are hearing these stories, they're um, a great reminder that, um, you know, that older people can be more vulnerable in relation to those romance. Well, we're all vulnerable when it comes to romance. That's the truth. Um, but old, but people who are isolated uh, are more vulnerable. Um, one of the things I was going to say is that uh, COVID has increased isolation for many people, older people, um, and sometimes it's reduced face-to-face services. But one of the good things that I think has come out of it is a greater emphasis on reaching out to older people. And I think that's something that well, it's something that I hope continues because um, the, uh, what you say is messages around it's a, elder abuse is a community issue. We need to tackle it as a community. We need to um, speak out about it as a community. So I think that, you know, maybe something good might come from COVID, uh, like a renewed focus on supporting older people and reaching out. Um, I was going to give you a question that says, you know, what's on your big picture wish list? Um, You know, if you had the opportunity to change anything to improve the lives of older people, what might be some of the things that you would like to identify? Well, the list is very long and I have <laughs> many hours of the day, but I would love to see a harmonisation of powers of attorney so we could do a national education for everybody, but in particular for the core community. It, it's difficult enough, this booklet, you know, you decide who decides. For in, people who speak English as their first language, it is in, almost impossible to get to the core community in that sort of detail. But you could, if you could have one power of attorney or one lot of enduring documents and then have a national education campaign. I would love to see that. I would love to see, and I'm hoping we'll see it, some CPD, some continuing professional development material for postgraduate people, people in the allied health professions, but also at TAFE level and the level that um, Commissioner Fitzgerald's developed for people who are in contact with older people. I would recommend to any of your listeners, at whatever level you're meeting with people, there's a lot of information there and a lot of help, particularly for, for people in New South Wales. I would also love to see an education program or a way of before somebody signs off that they've said my person or the people to whom I'm giving this power of attorney have gone through this training program online with me to see what their responsibilities are. That's the end of my formal questions, Kay, but are there any other, you know, messages that you might want to get out at all on the podcast? 
you can make a huge difference to a lot of lives. But if there's even one life that you've made a difference and directed them to get help and to get help, sometimes legal help, maybe sometimes they do need or legal help or mediation, you will have made a difference to that person's life. And they are the most vulnerable people in our community and they deserve our protection and they deserve us to have our eyes open. I don't think I could end this uh, interview on a better note, Kay. I just wanted to thank you for, you know, your generosity in speaking to us today, for giving us some um, great ideas, for sharing your experience, your wealth of experience. Um, and uh, I'd just like to thank you for joining us today, our community workers, and thank you to the listeners. a lot of voices and opinions to be heard throughout these episodes. We would like to thank everyone who participated and shared their opinions and expertise with us. If you'd like to join the conversation, please send us an email at elderservice at legalaid.newsouthwales.gov.au. And as always, if you or someone you know is experiencing or at risk of elder abuse, then please speak up. If you're on the Central Coast, contact the Elder Abuse Service on 4324 5611. And for all other areas across Australia, you can call the National Elder Abuse Helpline on 1800 353 374 and you'll be directed to your closest service. So until next time, thanks from all of us at the Community Legal Education Branch and Elder Abuse Service from Legal Aid New South Wales.